Welcome to Follow the Money Ball, a podcast at the intersection of sports and money. Here's your host, David Sloan. I'm David Sloan, and I have opinions. I also have 44 years of experience as an agent for MLB players that back those opinions up. My guest today is Ken Davidoff, former writer for the New York Post. How are you doing today, Ken? I'm doing great, David. How about yourself? Excellent. Thank you. Uh, how is retirement treating you? It's got to be the first <laughs> question I ask. It's wonderful. It's been almost a year and a half, and I'm just uh, doing a bunch of projects, including an uh, article here and there for the Post, uh, but just uh, able to enjoy life far more than I was when I was working. Really? Excellent. Any yeah. Anything that you can share as far as product projects, rather? You're not working on a book or anything, are you? I have a couple books in the works, nothing sold yet, so nothing to announce. Uh, and then I am uh, teaching, <clears throat> excuse me, sports journalism at Endicott College up in Beverly, Massachusetts. I contribute to a weekly television show in New York called Yankees Nation. I'm a Yankees historian. That's on WPIX Channel 11, Sunday nights at 1130. And just keeping busy with a bunch of other uh, freelance writing stuff. Well, then I would say you're hardly retired. It's not like you're... <laughs> it's, it's a retirement mindset. It's not It's not like you're golfing and fishing, but uh, I guess the best way to put it is your, your time is your own as opposed to you owe it to uh, your boss, so to speak. That is exactly right. And I actually have started golfing just this summer. I'd never played 18 rounds before. Now I've played three of them in the last couple months. Really? Yeah. And... Oh, I'm awful, but it's really, and the great thing about golf for me is like, if you have two good shots, you know, a day, like I come home beaming, I'm thrilled. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, as opposed to like tennis where I go and get my butt kicked most days. I understand. I understand. Well, uh, I live a block off a golf course, uh, that used to host the Honda classic. Unfortunately for me, um, my doctor advised me to sell my clubs. Um, and, uh, you know, I had many friends over the years that had told me to sell my clubs, but, uh, they don't count as much as the doctors do. So um, let's get back to uh, your pre-golf career. Let's put it that way. Um, so how did you get into sports writing? Were you always a, a, a writer? I, you, you played uh, as a kid. Uh, is that what got you into um, writing? Did you major in journalism in college? Any, all of the above? So I grew up in Edison, New Jersey, and I uh, grew up a, a huge baseball fan. And really, like in the mid to late 70s, you had to choose the Yankees because the Mets were unwatchable. So I was a Yankees fan for 77 and 78. And every morning, I would read uh, the Newark Star-Ledger, which was our, our local paper. Right. And they had two writers, uh, Moss Klein, who covered the Yankees, and then Dan Castellano, who covered the Mets. And I would read them every morning at breakfast. And I said, well, yeah, I just got the feel for what their job was as beat writers. And they were just with the team day in, day out, on the road, at home. And I just saw how masterful they were, how, how knowledgeable they were about their teams. And I played baseball, but at age seven, I was self-aware to know uh, I wasn't going to make it professionally. I didn't even make my high school team. So, uh, so that wasn't happening. I said, I, but I do love baseball. And I, I did love to write. So even back then at age seven, I said, I want to be Moss Klein to be Dan Castellano. So uh, I wrote for the high school newspaper. I attended the university of Michigan for college, uh, at least partly with the idea of this going to a school with such huge sports programs would give me the opportunity to be around them and to write about them. And I wrote for the college newspaper at, at Michigan and uh, I was on my way. You know, I had a, a very, linear path. I uh, started uh, small at a small newspaper back in Jersey, covering high school sports, kind of climbed the ladder. I worked for the Bergen Record. I believe that's when you and I first met, David, uh, when I when I got the Yankees beat there. And I uh, went from the Bergen Record to, uh, which is in Jersey, to Newsday out on Long Island, and then from Newsday over to the Post. But I wound up covering baseball uh, exclusively for, for the high majority of my career from really like 1997 until I stopped uh, early last year. So you started back in the days when people actually used to, the Stone Ages, when they had a newspaper that you had to hold in your hands. Wow, as opposed to reading it on a tablet or a computer screen. Absolutely. Gee whiz, imagine that, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I have to say I had a similar experience. I grew up every day checking the box scores, following teams, and um, I, I still, I, I have to admit, we get a daily newspaper here. 
because they're they're to me there's just something tactile to uh sitting down eating my breakfast drinking coffee reading a newspaper and i think a lot of people miss that experience and and to me it just isn't the same reading it on the computer um and i'm sure that's just one of many changes that you've seen in your career and one of many things i I want to explore as we go forward so uh you wrote for your high school paper and that was covering all sports yeah, in the high school paper. I think we came out, you know, once every two months. You know, so it wasn't. Uh, it, it was a little different uh, routine and time commitment. Yeah, that was uh, uh, when I was in high school. My senior year, I wrote for a newspaper here that was eventually acquired by the Sentinel uh, Corporation, and um, they had me covering spring practice because I had played against the guys that were coming up the year behind me. And I liked it. I enjoyed, I enjoyed writing. The, the problem was what I didn't enjoy were the deadlines. So I can't imagine uh, the relief you must be feeling now not having to, to deal with that and, and having your only deadlines being your own. I assume, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that when you got to uh, Michigan and you were covering the, the Wolverines, that it was more than just baseball because Michigan is not that much of a baseball school, even though they do have a pretty good baseball program for, you know, a school up in the Arctic like that. Um, uh, And their other teams are so much more well-known, let's say. The football team and the basketball team are so much more well-known than the baseball team. So I assume you covered all those sports. Were, Were the deadline issues something similar to what you experienced later in your career, either in the, the Bergen paper or Newsday or the Post? Absolutely, David. And I, I have to start with one thing. You talk about the relief of not being on deadline anymore. I, I actually was pretty good with deadlines, but just this last week, I had a nightmare that I missed a deadline. The post. <laughs> you know, I've been out a year and a, almost a year and a half. So that was pretty funny that you bring that up. Uh, but yeah, so the truth is, uh, going to uh, Michigan with the big time sports programs. If you remember the Chris Weber timeout game, yes. the, uh, 1993. So that was my senior year. I was in the building. That was the Superdome in New Orleans. I was in the building, actually sitting behind the foul line as Chris approached. And he cut, so he called the timeout. Right. I was like to my, in front of me to my left. And uh, you know, like that night we had serious professional deadlines. And uh, you talk about the evolution of technology. We didn't even bring uh, laptops with us. You know, back then it was like the Radio Shack laptop. They called it the Trash 80. I think it was the T80. Right. And we didn't even have that. It was dictation. I wrote out my article, my column longhand, and called it in to an editor in Ann Arbor. Oh, wow. So for that night, it was, that was a legitimate professional deadline. And I was, as I said, my senior year or so, Let's say three, four months later, I was at a job interview in New Jersey, showed them that article, and the editor kind of went over with me. Well, what was your deadline in this? I said, you know, about an hour, hour and a half after the game ended. And the, the editor said, wow, like that, that's legit. That's too legit to quit. And that yeah. editor, his name is Jim Miller. He hired me and gave me my first uh, professional job. So that was a big break. Was that was that the first really, really big story you covered because there were some excellent Michigan teams back then. I mean, uh, there still yeah. are to this day, but nonetheless, there were some excellent Michigan teams in that time period when you were there. Absolutely. Yeah. We had Desmond Howard who won the Heisman trophy during my four years. You talk about the baseball team, the, the, you know, what hit the fan my freshman year because the coach got uh, caught. So if you look back at Michigan baseball in the eighties, it was pretty remarkable. Barry Larkin, Chris Sabo, Jim Abbott, Hal Morris, all these guys. Now, I don't know what each of them individuals up to, but it turned out that the the baseball team as as a whole was was you know was getting some money. Yeah, uh, you know which would which would be fine nowadays with name and image likeness, but back yet back then was a was a was a felony. Uh, so the baseball coach got fired uh, just as I was arriving on campus uh, in 1989. Uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, getting back to your original question. Uh, yeah, that, that whole year, I mean, that, that the timeout game was by far the biggest individual story, but the Fab Five was ginormous. Yes. You know, they were, they were, I claim, was that they had made the championship game the year before they got killed by Duke in the championship game and all came back as sophomores. So they were a huge, huge story always. 
Well, the whole time they were there, they were big. I mean, they came in and were, I mean, big time hyped because they were such high profile high school kids and they all went to, uh, to the same program. And um, by the way, I, I'm sure that Michigan baseball team, they were the only team in the country that were getting paid under the table. Right? Absolutely. Every other team was clean as a whistle. Pure as the driven snow, as the, <laughs> the saying goes. So, um, so you, you had those years at Michigan. What a great preparation for, for what you did. Uh, um, I, again, uh, no disrespect to MLB, no disrespect to the New York Yankees, obviously a, a, a huge uh, tail that wags the dog sort of uh, uh, entity in, in regard to their particular sport. But to cover a program like Michigan, um, you know, you, you, certainly, uh, you certainly got a, a good head start as far as in comparison to your peers from other areas that, that uh, would eventually be competing with you for jobs. So you went to the to the Bergen paper that was the first one in New Jersey. Well, I was a, no actually well, I was a small paper that the Bergen record owned called the News Tribune. Okay, so you started at the News Tribune and were you covering only baseball there? Oh no, no, I did all it was all high school sports, uh, very occasional small college sport. Actually, I believe we did cover Rutgers, but like, you know, excuse me, the more experienced people uh, cover Rutgers football. I covered some of the smaller sports at Rutgers, but pri- primarily, I'm sorry, high school sports across the board. Rutgers plays football. <laughs> uh, so, Michigan opponents. So, so the the focus was uh, strictly on the the local teams, if you were. Uh, yeah, and that was, and you know, back in those days, like you, the newspapers could survive quite well on that. You oh know? yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was uh, a hearty competitive area and all these different sports, Middlesex County, New Jersey, which is where I grew up and Union County and uh, Monmouth County. And we, we did just fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was like the paper that I wrote for, uh, it's called the Hollywood Sun Tattler and it covered, uh, you know, the town of Hollywood, which was, a uh, uh, back then a small town. Now it's, it's grown exponentially, but at any rate, um, getting back to your situation. So how long were you, uh, with that paper? I was with that paper for about nine months, eight months, and then I went to the Bergen Record, which which at that same family owned both newspapers. Okay, well, and that's a that's a big deal. I mean, that paper is still going; they're still covering all the sports, not only in the that New Jersey area, but they do have a pretty heavy New York focus. Correct. Correct. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so you go there uh, to the Bergen paper, and. Um, did you, when, when you came back from Michigan to work for that New Jersey paper, um, I'm sure you were overpaid. Um, so, <laughs> so, so now, now you're a free, freewheeling, what, 21, 22 year old? 22. 22 year old, freewheeling, 22 year old guy making gobs of money. Um, you, you had your own place, right? I, I, this is a part of the story I tell every young person I speak to. I was very lucky that my parents took me back in. Oh, okay. I, that, that allowed me to to make it in this business. Otherwise, it would have been far more difficult. Well, obviously, your parents must have been supportive of your path to begin with, because I can't imagine that going to the University of Michigan as an out-of-state student at that time was was inexpensive. So obviously, they were they were behind you from the beginning. So yes, you you are very fortunate. So no swinging bachelor pad quite yet, right? Okay. Because, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, I'm sure as a sports writer covering the, the Yankees and everything that, that, um, that you got quite a bit of, let's call it exposure. Um, so, so you started off there and you were covering the Yankees right away. No, I was not. So I joined in early April, or, I'm sorry, late April, early May of 1994. 94. I joined as still part-time at this point, uh, and I covered high school sports up in Bergen County, Jersey, and Passaic okay. County. And, and, uh, and it took me, what, three years? Well, I guess I got, took me two years there to get the full-time post, and that was like general assignment sports, so I kind of backed up the other beat writers across the spectrum, baseball, football, hockey, basketball, college sports, and then in 97, I became what we call backup baseball, kind of focused my attention on the two baseball beats, Yankees and Mets. And then in 98, I got the Yankees beat. Oh, cool. So uh, during those days where you were covering high school sports, um, I'm trying to think if I can recall 
uh, you obviously know it much better than I do. Uh, who were the, the players from the area that you can recall that were big time players that either, you know, went on to, to success in, in football or basketball or baseball? New Jersey's a, a, a very underrated area in terms of, of recruiting talent. I know uh, when I went to Arizona State, uh, the football coach, Frank Cush, uh, recruited several real good players from there and they were guys that they weren't as highly touted necessarily as some of the kids from California that he got or Pennsylvania or Texas but they worked out to be very very good players um my freshman year in particular there was a a guy in the same dorm that I lived in who was from New Jersey that was uh, uh Prentice Williams was his name and uh he turned out to be a very good player for Arizona State back then Arizona State had some damn good teams uh 75 they finished second in the country so um uh, who were the great players that you saw back then as high school players who went on to success in college and or maybe even the pros? So two names stand out in my memory. One is Chris Sims, Phil's yeah. son. He uh, played, I remember I covered when he was a freshman at Ramapo High School in, <clears throat> I forget what town that is, <laughs> in then Bergen County, uh, Franklin Lakes, I think. Uh, and, uh, I went there and, you know, oh yeah, that's, that's the Sims kid. And, and lo and behold, I I remember it was a Friday night game, like standing in the dark is, is dad himself, you know, Phil kind of separating himself from the crowd, just kind of standing, uh, and watching that, you know, you could tell Chris had, had real potential and obviously had those bloodlines. So the other guy who stands up my memory is Mark DeRosa, you know, the baseball player. Yeah. I just missed covering him play. I believe when I got to the record, he was a freshman in college. Um, but I remember like, he was such a big deal for our readership. He, he played for Penn. You know, he played football and baseball at Penn. And so every game in Philly, every football game, he was a starting quarterback. Uh, like we would send a writer down to Philly to cover that game because Mark was such a big story for our readership and I got to know Mark a little bit like he would come back for awards dinners and stuff uh, and obviously I got to know him better once he uh, once he entered Major League Baseball and I was covering Major League Baseball. Well that's one of the great things about doing this podcast I, I learned something literally every time I, I had no idea that DeRosa was a football player as well as being a Major League Baseball player for quite some time and a pretty damn good one. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, that's great. So, so you 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 did that, and you you got to cover baseball full time two years after you got to the Bergen paper. Uh, three years. Three, three years. years. Okay. So now, I assume this is the swinging bachelor pad period of your life. <laughs> I could not be more clear about this. I married my college girlfriend. Did you really? Uh, we uh, graduated together in 1993. We uh, were together through that all my uh, struggles, and we got married in January of 1997. So never in my life have I owned a swing bachelor. <laughs> so um, was she a Jersey girl also? No, she's a Michigan girl. Yeah, I married in state. Oh, okay. And she moved back to Jersey with you. Yeah. Yeah, we live in New York now. Uh, interesting, interesting. Well, congratulations. You've been married a long time. I have. Excellent, excellent. Um, okay, so so now you start covering uh, baseball, and was it both the Yankees and the Mets? So initially in 97, it was both teams, uh, a lot of daily beat coverage to fill in for the two primary beat writers who were off. I'd fill in on the occasional road trip. And then in 98, we had some staff shuffling. I got promoted to Yankees beat writer. So so in that time, before you got promoted to being the beat writer, you were 24, 5? 26 at that point. 26. Okay, so now you're 26 years old, and you're a backup guy. So, so what was that like in terms of, you know, the pretty good Yankee teams? Um, what sort of reception did you get from the players? Did they, did they you know give you the respect you hope to get, or did they treat you like, ah, this guy's still wet behind the ears sort of thing? Well, I certainly was wet behind the ears. And, uh, but I think I knew much like I told you at age seven, I knew I was never going to make the major leagues. I, I think self-awareness has hopefully been one of my strengths in life. So I, at 26, I wasn't trying to big time anyone or, you know, be buddies with them. I think I was pretty humble and deferential 
And uh, so, you know, I was there enough that they got to know my face, you know, as, as, as you know, when you go on the road with a team as a media member, when you're with them in Kansas city and Milwaukee, like that really tightens that bond. Like, all right. This, this guy's here a lot. You know, this isn't when someone who just parachutes in uh, twice a homestand or something like that. So uh, yeah, I got to know those guys pretty well, even in 97. And then when I became the, the primary beat writer 98 and you're in spring training for six and a half weeks every day, then they really get it, get a feel for who you are, but for better or worse. Yeah. Cause they're seeing your face all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, they know, again, please correct me if I'm wrong. They know your maybe perspective is the wrong word, but maybe it's not. They know your perspective as well as just your face because different writers, in my experience, approach the teams they cover and specifically the players that they cover in different ways. Um, One of the things that I always liked about you and reading your stuff is there were many writers that I knew throughout my 44 years of representing baseball players that were more anxious to write a negative story um, because it got them more notice than to write a positive story about a player. That was not you. And that was one of the things that I appreciated about your approach um, to my clients specifically, but to just the, the way that you covered things in general. You, you played it pretty straight down the middle. Here's what happened in the game. Here's who you know did well. Who, and, and even in covering situations where a pitcher gave up a gopher ball or a shortstop booted a ball that determined the outcome of the game, uh, you covered it more from the perspective of that's baseball. And uh, was that also something that you picked up from the players as well in terms of they were more, if there was a, a guy standing at his locker room, let's, let's you know do this, say, for example, guy standing in his locker room after uh Again, the shortstop who boots the ball and determines the outcome. Um, was he more likely to turn to you and address your question as opposed to the question of someone who, let's say, wasn't Ken Davidoff? Uh, I appreciate the nice words. And uh, the answer to your question is I, I hope so. And I, I think generally I, I did get along well with the people I covered, but you know, I, uh, it wasn't all uh, – all, all uh, honey drops and 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 uh, cloudless skies. You know, I had my share of conflicts and tension, and and frankly, I don't think I would have been doing my job right if I never had any conflict or tension. I think it's inevitable, and and if I'm doing my job right, uh, but yeah, I think by and large, well, let's put it this way: I've been out now for a year and a half, and I've been very pleased with how I've been able to main, uh, maintain the relationships I want to maintain. That people are still you know, if I want just want to shoot a text to someone in the game, uh, I'll generally get a response, you know, uh-huh. which I, I think I, I'm very happy. Uh, about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what would you say was, I, I'm not going to ask you to, to get into personalities because I, I, quite frankly, I'm not interested in those things, but what would you say was the most difficult story that you had to cover? And, and I'd really appreciate it if we could approach this from the perspective of, let's say the beginning of your career, okay, and then the peak of your career, and then um, the end of your active career, because your career is not over by any stretch of the imagination. What would you say were those, the, the three most difficult stories that would fit into that time frame? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, so early in my career, I like I did get, you know, I I was able to cultivate some sources and to find out some stuff that I wasn't supposed to find out. Uh, And that is very exciting, but also very nerve wracking because what what is the best way to go about, uh, you know, uh, executing, you know, this, you know, the story that that attached this information. Uh, And there were instances uh, where, uh, you know, I found out stuff at a Yankees team meeting and, uh, I actually have spoken about this. I mentioned that I'm teaching a sports journalism class and I told my class about one experience and it was, it was with Paul O'Neill, the Yankees outfielder and now longtime broadcaster where I had some information 
uh, essentially that Joe Torre had had a meeting that many of his, Paul's teammates thought was targeted toward Paul, even if Paul you know, was never named. It was, I think it was the very last year of Paul's playing career. And uh, I didn't execute it well, even though it was a, the story was accurate. I didn't give Paul full notice uh, as to what I was writing because, I, frankly, I think I just didn't have the stomach for it. Uh, and I wound up apologizing to Paul after the fact. He was understandably livid with me. Uh, although to get a little nuance, like he thought the information was inaccurate. I asserted the information was accurate. Uh, he didn't talk to me for a while. And I said, okay, I get that. We wound up making peace about a month after. But that was an instance of had I got that information later in my career, I would have known far better how to handle that grenade. Uh-huh. Uh, because I was not even, I, it's, it, it was here we are 22 years later. And I'm still upset with myself about how I handled that information. So the obstacle there was was writing the story and doing it in such a way where you you weren't going to piss off the guy you were writing it about as opposed to writing it in a way where you didn't burn your source. Yeah, it's funny. I wasn't that worried about burning my source. I just frankly I was I just didn't I wasn't ready for that, you know, for that story. You uh-huh. know, just experience-wise. I was 30 years old, but this was a it's a freaking grenade. Uh, Did you back and, into it or was it something where you had been digging and, and you finally found, uh, I would hesitate to call it a gem considering how the whole thing worked out, but uh, was it something that you had been digging on and, and you found something? Yeah, I was, well, to Joe Torrey had a team meeting. I, I think it was in, in Seattle, like a couple of, you know, it was always very anxious in those times because all the reporters were very subtly trying to dig, trying to find out what happened. So I'm right found out a couple of days later what happened. And it was, you know, again, it was juicy, juicy information. And I wanted to report it. Uh, and um, I just didn't, for whatever stupid reason, I just didn't fully put my cards on the table. I, it was going to piss off Paul no matter what. Mm-hmm. But if I pissed him off only because of the information I had, as opposed to the way I reported that information, those are two different things, right? So that's why I was mad at myself. Uh, is that it? I didn't put the cards with Paul. This is exactly the information I have. This is what I'm going to report. Do you have a comment? I kind of backed into my question to him. He didn't fully understand the question. He didn't fully understand what I was writing. So then that made it all the worse when the story came out. And to make to make clear, like I think the story helped my career. <laughs> like it, it was, you know, got talked about on WFAN, and and you know, Joe Torrey did not deny the story mm-hmm. uh, um, because I believe the information was accurate, mm-hmm. but. Um, uh, again, just the way I handle the whole thing left me more upset than, than pleased. Well, let me ask you now as professor Davidoff. Um, so is that a situation where you would tell your students that if you're in that situation, maybe consult your editor before you do something or ask another writer who at that point might be a little more experienced than you? Yeah. And I told this very stored in my class. And that's exactly the advice I gave them. And I also told them like, take your time, like, you know, just take, make sure you go through every step before you, you put this information out there because you want to, and I always credit my, uh, my sort of former sort of still colleague, Andrew Marchand from the New York post. Yeah. He has my favorite lines in the industry. You want to have the argument before the story goes to print or goes online, not after. Right. So you want to hash it all out before it's out there and then you can you can feel at peace when it's out there no matter what havoc it creates when it's out there at least you know you've fully done your due diligence and fully vetted it and checked all the boxes okay so if i'm sitting in your class i'm raising my hand and asking the question professor davidoff how do i take my time when i've got a deadline well, that's a good question. And the story and the answer is you don't have to put that, that find something else to hit that first deadline with find other, you know, I, as the Yankees beat writer, I could have gone 10 different ways that day. Uh, I, I, I could have written about, cause this wasn't, this wasn't a competitive story per se. Look, if, if someone else had gotten the information before me and beat me on that story, right. I would have lived. I would have been pissed at myself, I'm sure, but not as I, that I wouldn't, that anger wouldn't still be with me 22 years later. I wouldn't be talking to you about it. I hear you. Uh, so yeah, there, there's other angles you can explore to hit that deadline and keep working on this other story 
and, and, and keep it in your pocket and keep working at it. So hold it in abeyance until you feel that the time is right necessarily and you have done your for lack of a better term, due diligence, let's call it, in terms of talk, like you're saying, talk to Paul O'Neill first and say, look, I've got this story. Um, I believe it's accurate. Can you confirm for me whether it is or not? Right. And and And, and just to to Tori, just just really, I I did not put my cards on the table in the way I should have. I understand. I understand. And as far as your, your, let's call it regret, uh, 22 years later, um, anybody who says that they've, lived for any length of time and doesn't have regrets is lying their ass off. So, um, you know, if that's any consolation to you, I, I wish I could tell you that I could look back on my 44 year career and, and didn't, uh, regret anything I said or did or, or mistakes that I made. So, so I, I wouldn't carry that, you know, too heavily if I were you. Okay. So that's the beginning of your career and, and you had this, let's call it a misstep. Um, but nonetheless, uh, uh, a pretty big story. So uh, your career goes on and, and you're, you're Yankee-focused. But also, uh, you, uh, again, please correct me if I'm wrong here, while focused on the Yankees, you have to also, um, uh, what would be the best way of phrasing this, you also have to be not maybe equally focused, but at least partially focused on what's going on in the rest of the game as well, Right. Because there's developments occurring that impact the Yankees and how you cover them and baseball in general and pennant races and other divisions and all that kind of stuff. Yes, absolutely. And my job title did change eventually. So I went from the Bergen record to Newsday in 2001, continued to cover the Yankees. That's when this O'Neill story happened. I was with Newsday. And then in 2004, 05, Newsday promoted me to baseball columnist. So then I started writing columns every day, which are, are, are guaranteed to create more uh, intensity uh, of reaction. Uh, and that uh, really kind of expanded my horizons more to the Mets, Yankees and Mets, and Major League Baseball as a whole, all-star games, World Series, even if the New York teams weren't at it, winter meetings, general managers meetings, owners meetings. So that really uh, expanded my horizons. So which is more difficult, the the day-by-day game coverage with the obviously impending deadlines or the the columns that you you wrote the day for me it was you know i I had the same deadlines as a columnist but for me it was a day-to-day just because being a columnist columnist just liberated me from having to care about every little detail you know this this player is on the shelf with a bruised right ankle you know it was the backup infielder you know i really didn't have to worry about that story anymore i was uh, hunting bigger game well you got to cover what you wanted to as opposed to what you had to right yeah i mean look there were obviously there were stories that i uh, you know, that my editor insisted you need to write a column about this but 99% of the time i agree with my editor about that so that wasn't really a problem yeah, well, that's a good idea to agree with your editor, isn't it? <laughs> so, so now you're at Newsday and um, pretty big time at that point. Uh, what story would you say was the biggest story you covered then? Wow, uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know what stands out is um, is the passing of George Steinbrenner. That was 2010. I was at the. It happened the morning of the All-Star game, and that year the All-Star game was in Anaheim, and I was the only person there for Newsday. And, I, like, yeah, we talk about different stages of your career and different levels of confidence and competence, right? And, like, yeah, I felt like I was at the top of my game at that point. Uh, and I remember I was the only person there for Newsday, and I remember Cheater was there and Pettit and probably Rivera, I'm not positive, uh, but certainly some, some guys who knew George well. And I remember the, the, that day always the commissioner and the head of the Players Association speaks to the Baseball Writers Association of America like in the morning, and Bud Selig and George were very, very tight. Uh, so I probably cranked out like seven stories that day, maybe more, because there's all of that plus the All-Star game. Uh, and I was like, I remember, I remember like my wife and son were with me in Anaheim because they were going to Disneyland and then going, my son was a huge baseball fan. They went to the game itself. I remember like my son was with me when I got the call and my son would have been like six years old at that point. 
And you know, I got the call that morning. Yeah, George is dead. Um, and like, I just was totally calm. Like I was just like, all right, I'm on it. Like it called my editor. We're going to do this, this, and this. Then you know, I called my wife. I my, my wife had gone somewhere. I said, just, if you can please, you know, calmly, like just please get back when you can. Uh, George Summer has passed away. Uh, so you need to take our son. Uh, so, uh, but I remember just being like in the zone, like just, I got this. And I remember very, being very proud of how I handled an unexpected huge story uh, occurring uh, at this place where I was the only reporter on site and where the entire baseball industry was. So uh, I remember just being very, very pleased that it all turned out. Yeah, that's a great feeling. I know I had it personally as well as an agent. Some There were some times in my career where, where I'd be negotiating with a, a GM and um, or, or be in a, a living room trying to recruit a player. And I, I would say something and I'd be thinking, wow, I really just said that, huh? <laughs> and uh, I, I felt pretty good about myself. That is, that's a, that's one of the great feelings, no question about it, from from doing something like that. So, so let me go back. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, that story in, involving the the death of George Steinbrenner. What was it like covering George? Because I, I I had some some interactions with him, and obviously, you know, in my role as an agent was dramatically different from your role. Um, I I I would hesitate to call. George perceiving me in particular, but I would say agents in general as adversarial, but it wasn't, you know, buddy, buddy either. Um, whereas in your situation, unless you were writing something critical about him personally or the team, um, George was pretty good with the press, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, George, uh, certainly understood the value of the press and the value of the, of the tabloid back page. Uh, and I mean, he, uh, he could be so much fun and so entertaining. Uh, but, and the other, the other side of it was my gosh, did he provide material, you know, because he was always doing these crazy things that you would hear about behind the scenes. Uh, so I got so many stories, uh, just about George and the things George was doing. I mean, my favorite George story, just to illustrate the chaos it was whenever you were in the same place as him. Uh, and I mentioned my son. So on February 14th, 2003, like I was at, uh, it was then called legends field, you know, the Yankees complex right. and take, okay. now it's George M. Steinbrenner field. Right. Right. And, uh, I like, we spotted George, you know, George is in the cafeteria. And so the six or seven or how many of the beat writers there were like, we're chasing after him, like Keystone cops style, you know, and he's in the golf cart with a security guy and we're George, George, you got a minute. And it was at that very moment that my phone rang and it was my wife calling to say that, that she was pregnant. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's, that's where I was when I found out that it, our son was coming is that, uh, you know, I was chasing George Steinbrenner down a, you know, down a corridor. Wow. Uh, that, that's pretty crazy. Uh, that, that's pretty crazy. The, the first time I ever encountered George, I didn't really encounter him, but uh, I, I was representing David Weathers. And Weathers had gone to the Yankees and, and let's be nice about it and say that Weathers eventually developed into not one of George's favorite players. Um, and I was in spring training, uh, up in Tampa and we had gone to a restaurant that, you know, David said, this is a great place. And this is, you know, one of George's favorite places. Maybe he'll show up. And I'm like, nah, sure enough. There's the entourage coming through the door, and then there's George. And um, he kind of looked at Weathers and, you know, a little bit of side eye, not severe side eye, but he looked at Weathers, and Weathers was like, oh, uh, no dessert, let's go, sort of thing. Because <laughs> he knew, I guess he didn't get a Christmas card from George that year, because um, David at that point in his career was pretty, um, let's call it inconsistent. Yeah, yeah. Was that Malios, the Italian Yes, place? yes, yeah. that was Malios. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, a favorite hangout of his. Oh, yeah, boss loved that place. The food was good. Yeah, it was good. It was good. The food was good. I don't know if it's still there. I haven't been back it's in many not. years. It's no, they closed it? Yeah. Well, I guess after George left, you know. <laughs> they lost a lot of business. <laughs> so um, at any rate, so now... Uh, uh, any other George stories that that really stand out for you? Because I know a little bit. I didn't have you know too many Yankees. I had Roger Erickson who played for the Yankees 
back mm-hmm. before you were there, I assume. I and remember then, Yankees and Twins, right? right yeah, there? Yankees and Twins. Yeah, yeah. Better with the Twins than with the Yankees, but just a really nice, solid, you know, uh, typical of what you might have encountered at Michigan in terms of the difference between Midwestern people and East Coast or West Coast people. Just, you know, um, again, the cliche Midwestern nice sort of guy. Um, but uh, there were some situations with, uh, with the Yankees. Um, Bob Watson, real nice guy. That of was course. the first time I encountered uh, Brian Cashman, who is still there. Yeah. Um, and Brian at that point, if I recall correctly, Brian, the first time I talked to him was an assistant to Watson. And uh, Brian and I were trying to make a deal on Weathers, and we couldn't make a deal. And Weathers is arbitration eligible. And Watson, you know, comes in uh, to the to the call I was having with, with Cashman and, you know, he's like, what's going on? What's wrong? Why can't you guys make a deal sort of thing? And, and Watson said, he gets on the phone. He took the phone away from Cashman. He goes, look, you don't want me to have to go to George about this. <laughs> and I said, Bob, I'm sorry, but you know, I, I think I've established David's value pretty well. And, and, you know, we got to, date for an arbitration hearing. And if we can't make a deal, we'll let the arbitrator decide it. And that case, literally, I had my bags packed. I had my exhibits packed. I was scheduled to go the next morning and late the night before I was leaving for Tampa, which would have been the day before the hearing, we, we made a deal. But one of the things that, that I said to David in terms of Hey, listen, this may not be every dollar we wanted to get out of this, but it's better than you know losing an arbitration hearing was, hey, David Watson said, you don't want me to go to George with this. Because <laughs> that was tantamount to saying your career with the Yankees would be over. Yeah. Right. So um, a- anything else that, that you care to share that, uh, you know, you, you think would stand out as an interesting or amusing George story before we go on? Well, look, obviously um, his health deteriorated yeah. uh, about the final seven years of his life. And uh, I, uh, I thought the media in that case did a, a bad job of, of still pretending that he was the boss, right? Like, because he was, you know, he would occasionally chase him down and he was forgetting names and just saying things that didn't really hold up. And uh, I personally didn't contribute much to that, but my, the outlets I worked for did. And, uh, you know, that is unfortunate in, in retrospect, but before that, you know, so I, I obviously, you know, I, I started, I was running the Yankees starting in 97. So I missed seventies and eighties, George, you know, by the time I got to George, I, I think he had calmed down a little bit, you know, and then understood, uh, the value of, of, uh, the young guys and, and continuity. And obviously, you know, what he didn't, uh, when he died, Joe Girardi was the manager. So, you know, for the last 30 years, the Yankees have had what Showalter, Torrey, Girardi, Boone. That's it. As managers, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, no one would have predicted that back in the 80s. No, definitely uh, not. Definitely uh, not. You know, I, I just had a real fondness for George um, because, yeah, you could be critical of him. And, yeah, he might be uh, momentarily pissed at you, but he usually shook it off. And he was like, he was just a, rem- a, a real funny person. Uh, when he wanted to be and just really fun to be around and to joke around with. Well, you can say what you want about George Steinbrenner, but the fact is he took a failing franchise and turned it into the marquee franchise, not just in baseball, but in all of sports. And uh, he was not afraid to, to spend money, certainly, but beyond just the money, because, you know, let's be honest about it. Every owner of every team has money. George was smart about realizing that, okay, I can spend too much money doing this, but I'm going to get a pretty good return on it, not just financially, but in terms of the value of the publicity that it will bring to me and the team. So he was, he was pretty good about that. And, and my last uh, encounter with George was back in, I want to say, 03, three or oh four when Carlos Delgado was on the verge of free agency the Yankees still had uh who was it? Tino it wasn't Tino Martinez was Giambi, it? right Jason Giambi. Jason Giambi that's right they had Giambi at first base and Delgado really wanted to play for the Yankees 
And, you know, I, I had some meetings with George about it. And George had so much money invested in Giambi. And at that point, you know, couldn't figure out a way to, to fit everybody into what would have boiled down to two positions, first base and DH. Um, it, it, was, it was unfortunate because back in the 70s or 80s when George was more of a freewheeling sort of guy, he would have found a way. He would have found a way. I mean, somebody, look, when Carlos first came up, they'd played him in the outfield. <laughs> he played left field for the Blue Jays. Um, you know, they would have found a place to, to put him or Giambi in, and, and they probably would have got it done. George would have figured out a way to get it done. Okay, so you mentioned that story. Um, what would you say later on in your career was the biggest story that you covered? Gosh, uh, I mean, what stands out to me is, is COVID, you know, and just, uh, you know, what, uh, how baseball dealt with that and, and baseball, uh, in some, in some ways had the most challenging mission of all the sports, uh, because the, the world shut down during near the end of spring training yeah. and, you know, so there was nothing for what, three months and then they had to try to ramp up and figure out a bunch of regulations and how are we going to do the scheduling and what kind of rules are we going to put in place? And then kind of just building it from scratch. Uh, and unlike basketball and hockey, it just wasn't realistic to do a full bubble um, the way those sports could. So they, they had some very heavy lifting to do. And I had to cover that. Uh, and yeah, I remember doing it. I'm, I'm talking to you from out in the, in the Hamptons where we have a, home and I memorized in my Hamptons place just you know working the phones nonstop and there was a lot of breaking news and so much ill will between the two sides as you know uh the the ownership side and the player side and their respective leaderships that was a very very challenging story to cover and I admit like I you know I already even before COVID hit uh my wife and I had been talking about me stopping doing this but all of that kind of just grease the skids for me to get out because I was so sick of it and really kind of sickened by the way, uh, you know, that both sides kind of handled a lot of that. Um, so, and then covering games that year, uh, in empty ballparks was so depressing and so dispiriting, you know, they weren't a distraction from what was going on. They were a reminder of what was going on. Uh, so that was a tough time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, it's unfortunate that it happened at all, but it's particularly unfortunate that it happened under the leadership that it happened under. Because I think if that would have happened back in the day when, when people like Marvin were involved on the player side and, and or Don Fair, um, I think things would have been handled differently. I think they would have been handled better. And needless to say, Rob Manfred tends to be a lot more confrontational uh, in his own way than, than, you know, Bowie Kuhn or, or Uberoth or any of the other people that ever occupied the commissioner's chair. Selig certainly would have handled it in a way that would have been smoother. Let's, let's call it smoother. Um, so it, it, it just, it, it happened, uh, it was a bad thing that happened at a bad time and was handled badly by everyone involved as far as baseball was concerned. And I agree with you 100%. There was no option of, of, of doing a bubble. And uh, the only other option would have been to uh, just cancel the season. And no one, no one wanted to do that. No one wanted right. to do that. So, yeah, that, that had to have been a, a terribly difficult story for, for anyone and everyone to have handled. Um, so a couple of other things I, I, I would like to approach. Um, where do you see as a obviously experienced, well-informed insider uh, who's now looking at it from the perspective of an outsider, where do you see the challenges for MLB coming, let's say, in the next five or ten years? Well, David, I do think the pitch clock has been huge. Uh, and Because I, I think if you had asked me this question a year ago, I would have said just, the, the length of the games and the way that carried over into declining attendance and TV ratings and interest from young people. I think, you know, you see attendance is up and I'm sure the pitch clock is not the only reason behind that, but it, I think it's a, a significant reason, just a significant narrative. Uh, so to answer your question though, 
I think it's just brand awareness. I think uh, just the culture of baseball and even just certain optics as, uh, you know, baseball players wear helmets and caps, it's harder to market the players. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the NBA is so successful because their players are so famous. And obviously a lot of that's because their players are, are mostly gigantic, uh, but they're also like, you can see their faces as they're playing. So right. everyone in the world knows what LeBron James looks, LeBron James looks like. And very few people in the world know what Mike Trout looks like. Uh, and, and that the fact that he's wearing a helmet isn't the only reason, but I think it's a big one. Uh, so I think it's, it's just the idea of how do we crack this, this younger generation and get ourselves out there uh, in a way uh, to really, really resonate like the NBA and, and NFL are, are able to resonate. Well, I'd make a couple of comments on that. First of all, Mike Trout. I can tell you one thing about Mike Trout. He's fucking huge. I mean, that was the thing. I, I represented Cleveland's, Cleveland's first draft pick several years ago, and um, I was there for the press conference to announce his signing, and they were playing the Angels that day and I was on the field for batting practice and I'd seen Trout play on TV a bunch of times. Trout Trout would be a, a, a linebacker in the NFL. He'd, he'd yeah. put on, you know, 20 more pounds and he'd be easily a linebacker and probably a damn good one because of how fast he is, either that or free safety. He is fucking huge. I, I, I did not realize how goddamn big he is. He is a big, big human. Um, and... Uh, you know, Jersey guy there. One one more thing I would mention from a personal perspective. The guy who signed him was a former client of mine. Eddie Bain was the uh, oh. director, I believe, of scouting for the Angels back then. And he was my mm -hmm. client. Eddie went to Arizona State and played on the team with roommates of mine and mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's Trout. In terms of the other comment that I would make, young kids uh, as opposed to old kids, I guess. Anyway, uh, in terms of, of reaching the kids, that's a tall order, and, and a big part of the reason that it's a tall order is baseball has become such an expensive game. When I was a kid, and I would venture to say probably very similar to when you were a kid, even though I'm significantly older than you are, um, baseball did not cost nearly as much as it does now because everything is so much more expensive. The bats, the gloves, the balls, the helmets, everything and not only that but now on top of that you've got the expense of travel ball because if you have any ambition whatsoever of playing beyond high school uh to either get a college scholarship or have a shot at the pros you've got to play travel ball so those expenses enter into it so i, I think that's a big reason why baseball has lost the inner city uh to a great extent because you know every city park has basketball hoops so if someone's got a basketball, even if it's a crappy basketball, um, you can play a game. Whereas baseball, you got to have bats that everybody can swing, you know, so that requires different bats. Everybody has to have a glove. You got to have balls because you're going to foul them off and lose them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, another thing that you mentioned in terms of identification of players, I, I learned very quickly when I got into the, the game that um, – a big reason that baseball players got pennies for shoe contracts as opposed to the multi-millions that basketball players got shoe contracts wasn't only because of the fact that everybody knows what LeBron James looks like as opposed to people not knowing how fucking big Mike Trout is. Um, you can wear LeBron James's shoes to middle school. You cannot wear Mike Trout spikes. And that's why that no matter how big a star, I mean, Derek Jeter never had a Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter didn't have Air Jeter. Right. You know, even though he, he played at the same time that Jordan played and was as big a star in his sport as Jordan was in his sport, nobody was going to market a, an Air Jordan line of shoes and, and other apparel because of that. So I, I think that's a, a big, big challenge. How does baseball get over that? And how do they start to get back those great athletes that, that came out of the inner cities years ago that, that you know, made tremendous impact in the major leagues. And, and now those players are going to basketball and football. Another reason is college baseball has 11.5 scholarships as opposed to college football has 
85, and those are full scholarships as opposed to a kid coming out of high school for a, a quarter of a scholarship or a half a scholarship to go play baseball. So if, if you don't come from a family that could pretty much otherwise afford to pay your tuition, at least at your local college, you are not going to get a whole lot of help from a baseball scholarship as opposed to football and basketball, which, which are full rides. So, okay, we, we've, we've kind of beat that to death. Um, what, what challenges do you foresee in terms of the people who filled the role that you filled covering baseball? And obviously that, that applies to varying degrees in the other sports as well. Yeah, that's a great question. And I just think that the, my sports media industry just evolves at such a rapid pace. And it was just a matter of keeping up, uh, you know, and, and now, uh, obviously with social media and the expectation that you'll post stuff on social media and filing 24 seven, as opposed to when I started, when you, you talked about deadlines and, and the deadlines still exist, but you're also, you know, really the deadline is right now, you know, when, yeah. when you talk about posting stuff online. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it's just a matter of juggling all those different things. And there's no doubt, um, uh, in the time I've been doing this, uh, it was remarkable how much control the leagues have taken, not just MLB, all the leagues of their own content, right? Which, as well, they should. Why wouldn't they, right? Yeah. But when you talk about MLB.com and the MLB network and the equivalents uh, across the spectrum and, and just trying to uh, be independent, well, let's look. I took some bucks from the MLB network. I, yeah, I was a correspondent and I would appear a few times a year on their shows. And I was secure enough uh, where my career was that I could go ahead and fire away at MLB and my column for the post. And yeah, you know, they I, actually, I was put in the penalty box at least once <laughs> you know, banned from their shows from a lot for a while, uh, but fine. I was fine with that, but it's a matter of, of walking that tightrope and, and trying to remain journalistically independent and do the job as old school types like myself feel like it was it was meant to be done well if you can if you can tell the story uh what did you do to get thrown in the penalty box if you can't tell the story that's fine too no it's pretty basic it was during COVID. it was actually you know, I, I wrote some uh, i think i don't know if it was one column in particular i i you know i i really felt like the the mlb and and any of the owners were, were pretty disgusting during during COVID. just really little sympathy for the public no regard for the risks the players were going to preparing to put themselves into in terms of getting infected. Uh, so I made that clear in my columns. So yeah, I, I think I was booked for a show and then, uh, you know, unbooked for a show. And, and they made it clear to you that that was the reason why? No, I know uh, I had some inside sources who, uh, uh you know, okay. told me. All right. Uh, um, what, what do you feel is the impact? And again, now I'm a student in, in professor Davidoff's class. What do you feel is the impact of the proliferation of let's call them alternate sites? Whereas previously, you know, go back 25 years, if you weren't writing for the New York post or the New York times or the Bergen County record or the Philadelphia Inquirer, Chicago, sometimes LA times, whatever, um, you weren't writing. Whereas now, just like I'm doing a podcast because I've got an opinion in a microphone, anybody can, you know, do a, a blog about baseball or football or what have you. And then there are all of these sites like Deadspin and, and, and Barstool and, and some of these other sites that have popped up and, and some become quite successful. Um, what impact do you think that will have? That, that's my first question. And my second question is, it seems to me observing it from the outside, that another recent development has been the uh, change in the, the source being, you know, the writer or the commentator becoming a personality as opposed to just somebody who writes things so that there are now uh, people like Skip Bayless and, 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 um, What's the other guy's name? I can't remember the other person Steve. that I'm not particularly Steve fond of. Don't recall. Don't recall. At any rate, but you know, there, there are, yeah, screaming, screaming a Smith as, as he is lovingly referred to by his uh, fan. Um, so, uh, you know, 
becoming a, a, a personality. I mean, Screaming A. Smith is, is on my wife's favorite dope opera that she watches literally every day. Were you aware of that, that he's an actor on a dope opera? I knew I knew exactly a little bit. I'm not aware of what show he's, he's on. Up. He's on General Hospital. Wow. Not, not regularly, but he appears from time to time. I, I'd have to ask uh, Nicole what it is that uh, he plays, but he, he, he is on there from time to time. I, I remember walking into the living room because she's a faithful fan of the show. And, and it's hilarious because my wife is brilliant. And the fact that she watches something that is just that idiotic to me. <laughs> I mean, people, people get amnesia, they die, they come back from the dead. They, it, it's incredible. But at any rate, getting back to my original point here, the, the, the writer or commentator as personality. I mean, you know, you had Carlo, you had uh, Howard Cosell, you had, uh, uh, to a lesser extent, um, you know, Don Meredith and Frank Gifford. Um, you had a few people like that back in the day. John Madden, another good example, also with the NFL. But, you know, when Kurt Gowdy did the MLB Game of the Week, Kurt Gowdy wasn't a personality. He was a, he was a commentator. Um, but now that's been a big change. What, what, do you feel that's a positive, a negative, neutral? And, and do you feel that that's something when you talk to your students that they need to be prepared to deal with or to become? Yes. Yeah, so I think it's a negative. Uh, I was certainly one of the many reasons that I stopped doing it on a full-time basis. I just didn't, uh, I really did not enjoy that, that uh, evolution or devolution. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to think, yeah, you know, I talked to my students a little bit. Yeah. You know, we certainly talked about I'm being a columnist or, you know, having a take on TV and I brought in um, Steve Buckley from the athletic more of an old school columnist. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a change for the worse, undoubtedly, because, uh, what, what's changed for me, you know, when you talk about Howard Cosell, like Howard Cosell was on site, you know, I mean, you know, obviously most memorably with, with Ali, yeah. you know, he and Ali went at it in person. Uh, but you know, when you talk about Skip Baylor sitting in some studio and just, just going off on people, I mean, I know he was an old school sports reporter back in the day, but he hasn't been one for quite a while now. So he's just firing off. Uh, things and going back to my Paul Neal story, like he's not Skip's not putting his cards on the table. Like he's not warning people ahead of time. Yeah, I'm going to say this about you on on TV. Uh, so I think uh, I think that's a, a real change for the worse, uh, for sure. I'm trying. What was your first question again? Um, first question was my, oh, the alternate sites. Yeah, um, yeah. So what I told my students when I yeah, I speak to a lot of young people, uh, I try to help them out. And what I tell them is it is far easier to get into this field than it was when I started, but it's far harder to make a career out. Now, when you talk about those alternate sites, some of them were a pain in my butt. And again, another reason why I left, when you talk about, you know, I've, I've learned that, uh, you know, well, let's say we're in 2004, I've learned that the Yankees are going to sign Carlos Delgado. Like some back if this media and landscape existed back when Carlos was a free agent, someone would have erroneously reported that. And I would have had to chase it down and called you and you would be like, no, that's simply not true. And you know, some Yankees person went in the same. And then like, that's like 10 minutes of my life. I'm never getting back. Yeah. So uh, there was so much of that going on. Now on the flip side, a lot of those alternate sites do great work, you know, and there were many times when I would read posts by them. And so oh, that, especially with the analytics, when, when you talk about fan graphs uh, or baseball prospectus, they're great. Like, from there, like, oh, this is very educational and informative. I'm yeah. glad this exists. And I would use that stuff to inform some of my writing for the more mainstream publication of the Post. Uh, I'll tell you another quick story about me. I'll never forget, I, I mentioned David Weathers' arbitration hearing earlier. Um, you know, war wins against replacement is now a, a, a well-used statistic. Back when, when Weathers was eligible for arbitration and a couple of other clients of mine were eligible for arbitration, I had put together uh, exhibits showing them prepared to, uh, compared rather to the average player at their position, average in performance, which essentially is what war is. But I was told by the people at the Players Association, oh, you can't use that. You know, it, it's not an accurate comparison. Really? How is it not an accurate comparison? I, I, I was champing at the bit to try and get the opportunity to, to use that. But by that point, I, um, I, I hadn't uh, 
I didn't have any clients that actually went to hearings, but I, the, it was very effective, let's put it that way, in the negotiations. So getting back to, to what you tell young people, and, and this is one of the reasons why I really like having people like yourself on, because I'm hoping that in addition to being entertained, the people that listen to this podcast might have the chance to actually learn something. Um, would, when you talk to your students or, or just young people, as you say, that you may encounter uh, elsewhere, um, in terms of, of your role as a, as a writer, um, would you advise somebody that if one of these, let's call them alternate sites, approaches them, uh, and they really want to write for the, the New York Times, or the New York Post, but you know some other alternate site approaches them, that, hey, as long as the checks don't bounce, take that and cut your teeth and then hope that somewhere down the road, the people from the times or the post notice you and hire you there. Generally. Yes. Uh, but I would want to more know more about the specific site. Uh, you know, because not all independent sites are, are created equal. Uh, but general, yeah, I advise young people. Uh, yeah. Don't, don't sit on the sidelines, get in there, get in your reps, make your connections. And, and I believe that's excellent advice. Well, Ken, thank you very much for your time today. I'm very lucky that after all these years, you still remember me, and it's not in a matter of, oh, that no good son of a bitch. Uh, <laughs> so I appreciate it. Uh, I'll let you run. Uh, have a great rest of your day. And again, I look forward to doing it again. All right. Stay in touch, David. Thanks I for will time. do so. And that's it for another edition of Follow the Money Ball with your host, David Sloan. To make a comment or a suggestion for a future guest, reach out to David at followthemoneyball.substack.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.